Maliki O'Doherty is a journalist based out of Northern Ireland and the author of several books, including The Telling Year, Belfast 1972. This is Maliki O'Doherty. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. I'm here with uh, Maliki O'Doherty. Did I fuck that up? I'm sorry. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. I don't expect people to get the accent right. It's okay. Maliki O'Doherty. You can play that back to yourself and rehearse it. Maliki O'Doherty. <laughs> Well, in any case, thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to you. You've done uh, a lot of reporting, uh, a lot of writing on uh, the troubles in Ireland. Mm, mm. And you, you've written a, a number of great books about it. And I, I was thinking about how to sort of like launch into this. And m- maybe one sort of like jumping off point here to sort of, you know, get introduced to a sense of uh, your life and history uh, as part of this, you know, social conflict. Uh, I'm thinking of your book, The Telling Year, mm. Belfast, 1972. Mm. And you, you describe what it was like being this young reporter during mm. uh, what I believe was the deadliest year of the conflict. And mm. w- what's interesting about it is that, and I think this was more true of reporters at that time, you did not grow up uh, necessarily like dying to be a journalist um and you happen to be this catholic journalist working at a a newspaper that usually hires protestants in the middle of you know one of the worst i believe the worst year of this ethnic conflict did did you have any sense at the time of what you were getting into well i was very young i was only 21 and when you're 21 you tell yourself that you're an adult but you're not really um, I had had a, a fairly conservative Catholic upbringing, went to Catholic schools. I did want to be a journalist. I suppose more I wanted to be a writer. And I had an idea that a writer was something other than a journalist. And But uh, journalism seemed to be a way into that. Um, in fact, that was a good intuition because although uh, other people around me would have sneered at the idea that a writer and a journalist were the same thing, um, which which I think is an idea that might sound quite alien to an American, where, where it's so clear that there's a, a linkage between quality journalism and 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 literature. You know, the, the journalism of the New Yorker is literature. Um, but those things were sneered at in the culture that I was in. But still in all, uh, I wanted to work as a journalist. Um, I, the paper that I worked on was a, was owned by a company which was run by people who were Protestant and Unionist. But they were seeking to create a Sunday newspaper which would have a broader appeal and which would sell to Catholics. The thinking behind that might amuse you. Uh, There had been in the previous years uh, a flurry of sex scandals (laughs) in Britain and these had featured in the Sunday newspapers uh, coming out of England and being sold in Ireland. And so this company that ran the newspaper that I was on basically said, well, there's a huge demand for, for a sensationalist Sunday newspaper, which does um, uh, you know, sensational stories about massage parlors and wife swapping mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So let's go with that. Let's have something like that. And let's, because we're working within a divided society, uh, which is riven over politics and sovereignty and religion and sport and everything. Let's just not have an editorial policy at all. Let's just have uh, stories and we can have comment from people from different parts of society. So we can have a Catholic nationalist, we can have a Protestant unionist, we can have a communist whatever, uh, writing columns for us, but we will have no editorial policy for the paper. What does that mean, no editorial policy? Well, well, in the sense that uh, any newspaper uh, here, and mostly I'm sure over there as well, will have an editorial. They will have a statement from the editor, you know, on an inside page. Usually beside the letters page, there will be a column in which the paper is stating its position on Vladimir Putin, on climate change, on... Uh, on how well 
Biden is faring in the you know in the in the forthcoming elections, that kind of thing. That statement of the paper's position is what we would call the editorial, I um, and we would that would be as distinct from what we would call um, an opinion piece or a column. So there would have been half a dozen opinion pieces in the paper taking various positions, but there would be no statement by the paper which said we want a united Ireland or we don't want a united Ireland or we, uh, uh, you know, we we want same-sex marriage or we want whatever. There would be no statement that could be dependably construed as the opinion of the editor of the paper. Mm. Now, once that paper was up and running, um, things changed within the context. Suddenly, uh, the big there were big news stories which were not about wife swapping and uh, and massage parlors um, and 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 that kind of thing. The the stories that were were they were about rioting on the streets. They were about political protest. They were about the uh, police brutality against uh, political protest. They were about uh, the agitation for civil rights and the growing level of uh, street violence. Uh, around the demand for civil rights and the rejection of that demand by the state and the protest, the counter protests by by Protestant unionists who saw the the civil rights demands as being essentially uh, an expression of Catholic nationalist Republican conspiracy. So, uh, so I joined the paper at a time when uh, when that was happening, and I was a young, poorly trained reporter, uh, ready to go into the job. Uh, but quite freaked out, I suppose, by the circumstances I was in. In some ways, exhilarated, and in some ways, having access to things which other journalists mightn't have, because I lived in a, a nationalist housing estate in a Catholic housing estate in West Belfast, very close to the activities of the IRA, and and also of the British Army. So I was I was living in what was then called a no-go area. That is, the IRA had erected barricades at the ends of streets to deter state, the state, the British Army or the police from coming into the estate. And so inside the estate, they were organizing their bombs to be transited into the center of town to, to attack commercial buildings in town. And they were storing weapons uh, used for uh, attacks on the police and the army. So I had a familiarity with things on the ground and I had... Uh, and I was going into the center of the city to work on this newspaper. And uh, there was a tension between those two situations. One was that um, there were many people around working on the paper who were suspicious of me because they knew that I lived in that, that area where there was a lot of IRA activity. And, so, uh, and also there were people in the area that I lived in who were suspicious of me because they knew that I was going into the city, that I was interacting with British Army press officers and so on, you know. So, so there was a strain within that situation that I was in, which um, I might have been able to capitalize on better had I been a bit more, a bit older, a bit more experienced. Uh, but instead, I, I find it quite stressful and something that I was keen to get away from. When you say capitalize better on it, what, what do you mean? Well, I was a journalist uh, in a situation where there was a massive story. There were other journalists coming over from America, from, from Australia, from parts of Europe uh, to cover the story that was on my doorstep. So as, you know, an ambitious young journalist should have been able to, uh, you know, to sell his own stories uh, all around the world, you know, should have been able to step in. You know, I could have stepped up as a freelance journalist and, and, and served the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Washington Post, all those avenues were open. Had I had the ambition and the determination and the courage, I suppose, to uh, to engage with more closely with the violence around me. Well, well but you you did publish stories, and, and you were. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I guess I'm when you talk about um, the fact that you're living in essentially IRA territory. Um, yeah as a journalist working for uh, an officially politically agnostic newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Um, and your status as a journalist was known in your neighborhood. So yeah. what what, um, what sort of conflict did that cause? I mean, it, did, 
were you ever at any point seen as like a neutral agent because you were a member of the press or is that idea just ridiculous? Well, um, a neutral agent, I, I, you know, I wanted to be seen as a neutral agent. Certainly I wanted to, you know, to be seen as somebody who, uh, who would listen to all sides and, uh, and take a detached and considered position in relation to them. I was aware, for instance, that members of the IRA were feeding me stories, which I was suspicious were just propagandist and not, uh, yeah, on both sides of the British Army was doing the same. Right. Um, so, I, you know, this was a chaotic time when it was very hard to stand on firm ground and, and keep a detached uh, assessment of, of the things going on around you. I mean, even the other journalists are very senior uh, British journalists on the ground, you know, and you would be going to to a situation where there'd been a bombing, for instance, and I would be the reporter with the Belfast accent. <laughs> yeah. And and there'd be other journalists around with, with their English accents. And the, the soldiers were much more comfortable speaking to them than they were speaking to me. Um, but that also led me to worry that they, those those journalists with English accents, were basically vulnerable to being instruments of propaganda as well. Right. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's interesting and that I think makes makes your perspective here interesting is that in the history books about this time, there are like the, the sort of the major players, the big names of this conflict tend to take up a lot of space. But one of the things that you point out is that there, there were a lot of just ordinary people like, you know, housewives sitting at home who are just, you know, oh, mm -hmm. God, like bullets are flying again. Time to pop mm -hmm. another tranquilizer. Uh, it, it seems here, here's my sense. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here. It seems like Belfast at this time was it, it was not like uh, Syria recently where things were just so horrific that everybody who could get out, basically they all left. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was also too violent for normal civil society to, to go on exactly as it had gone on before. Um, how, how did people not just go crazy? Well, it is interesting what you say. I mean, it wasn't, uh, my mother, for instance, a mother of six children living in a semi-detached uh, house on a on a housing state or housing development, you might call it, uh, with the front garden in front of her. Uh, would look out on the street, you know, when she was working in the kitchen, and she would see uh, she would see IRA men walking past the the front of the house with weapons, you know, but usually going off to store those weapons somewhere. She would see them occasionally take up a firing position at the end of the street to to fire at. A traffic if they were showing army vehicles going past on the main road. Uh, and she would, uh, you know, she knew that, uh, she would have known where where the IRA were stashing guns and bombing material. Um, she was also, I mean, but she, she was working at that time as a night nurse in the city hospital in Belfast. So she had to, she had to go in the evenings uh, to to the bus stop to get the bus down the main road to the hospital. So she had to walk a mile to the bus stop, for instance. So, and I mean, she told me one time that um, British soldiers stopped her on the road and said, look, Mrs. you can't go down there. There's a lot of shooting down there. She could hear the shooting. And um, uh, and they advised her, you know, simply go back home. And she just said, well, no, I have work to go to. I have a job to do, I have living to earn. Uh, so she just carried on walking, um, and there would have been shooting in some proximity to where to where she was walking. Uh, but she would have, as all of us would, would have required some degree of familiarity to the sound of gunfire uh, around us. Not not always very close, but sometimes indeed very close. Um, and she just she just put her faith in the hope that whoever was shooting at whoever wouldn't shoot uh, a woman in her 50s walking to work, you know, and uh, and and that that worked for her. Unfortunately, there were other people that didn't work for her. But the scale of the, the death toll, if you like, I mean, we're talking about 
Northern Ireland is a region with a population of a million and a half, and the capital city, Belfast, with a population of about half a million. Uh, so the death toll in the whole of Northern Ireland in that particular year, 1972, I haven't the exact figure around me, but around 500, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, so you can work out the percentage. Yeah, that's uh, you know a third of that. Uh, you know, I'm not going to. There's a point that I can't remember. I, I'll do it if you like, or you can do it. But essentially, it's 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 not that high. And then after that year, things settled down to a more routine average of about a hundred a year, uh, right? So, so that's um, that creates a degree of tension in your life when it's a hundred a year. But but not such that it's completely debilitating, you know. You're not uh, crouching in terror all the time. There were certainly were nights where there was shooting close to the house, and we we lay down on the floor for fear of bullets coming through the window. Uh, there were times. My father, for instance, was a a bar manager, and uh, one of the one night in the bar that he, the pub that he was working in, uh, some loyalists left a bomb in the doorway. Uh, and 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 someone noticed him doing this, so raised the alarm, and everybody ran out of the bar. But he had to leap over the bomb to get out, and he jumped over the bomb and out to the street and and ran for cover. And the explosion broke the windows in his car, uh, and he then had to drive home in a car with broken windows. You know, so so these are pretty horrific things to be happening. Um, I find a strange phenomenon, Duncan, when I'm talking to people about those days, and I'm beginning to do it myself. And that is you, the inclination to say, oh, it wasn't really all that bad, you know, oh, you got kind of used to it, you know. And then the more you think about it and the more you talk about it, the more you, the memories come back of things that really were really, really ghastly and yeah. really, really worrying, you know. Um, and and I suppose I suppose there's some kind of psychological uh, trick we play on ourselves to uh, uh, to minimize the horror of, of of bad memories so that we can get on with things. Oh yeah, but yeah. it wasn't like it wasn't like Syria. It wasn't like Beirut in the nineteen eighties. Uh, but certainly, it uh, it was a lot. I mean, for instance, Dublin currently has a gangland problem. Uh, uh, that Dublin's the capital city of the Irish Republic, about a hundred miles to the south of us, and we would hear on the news every few weeks about a murder in the gangland feuding in Dublin, right? So so that, that that adds a spice of tension to life in Dublin. But that's on a scale much, much lower uh, than the scale in Belfast throughout the Troubles. But there was never, for instance, a time, apart from maybe 1972, when it averaged out at even uh, one murder a day or one bomb a day. Yeah, no, and... and- um, you know, when I, I make the comparison to Syria, in, in no way am I trying to, to minimize the... the no, whole. of course not. I didn't think it that way at all. No. Um, but, but it is interesting what you said about that sort of psychological phenomenon. I mean, it, it just reminds me of, you know, I, I met someone once who uh, had been, uh, his dad had been quite abusive. And he was mentioning a story once, laughing of like, oh, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like spilled our milk or something like that. And uh, he yeah. made us all stand outside in the cold for like a few yeah. hours. He was like laughing. Yeah. We're like, yeah. that's, that's horrible. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> not good. And he's yeah, like, oh, good, well, man. you know, other people had it worse. It's like, man, like, uh, it, it, I don't know. I guess that's just one way to sort of cope with it. That's why that's why people deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Was it, is the comparison... Uh, that I'm I'm thinking of uh, is this fair at all? Where like in the I remember the first days of COVID, people were like, "Oh, well, this is going to be over in a couple of weeks." Surely, no one in Northern Ireland thought that this was going to go on for decades. I think that's right. I think maybe older people might have had a sense that it would not be easily resolved, and it hasn't even been resolved even now. Um, but. Um, no, I I think uh, I mean I remember even on the paper, one day uh, the news editor or coming down to the news desk and gathering us around for a wee pep talk, if you like, and saying, "Look, we're going to have to pull ourselves together. We're going to have to do other stories because this troubles, you know, the troubles is making it easy for us providing those stories, but it's going to end, you know. 
the British are talking to the IRA, they're talking to the Irish government, they're going to cobble something together and this will all be over, you know. And you guys are going to have to start learning another way of getting getting a story. Now, that was said to us in 1972 in the, in the worst year, you know. So, uh, so I think, yeah, I, I do remember one friend who, I mean, I, I didn't know it at the time. I suspected he was in the IRA. He was in the IRA. Um, and he was quite close to the leadership of the IRA. And I remember him saying, that he, he, you know, this is going on for, this will be on for 20 years, you know. Wow. Um, and, uh, but, and he was a man of about 20 saying that. Uh, but he was, but he was feeding that idea or that thinking, I suppose, from the discussions that he was having uh, with other armed activists, you know, that this was the kind of time frame in which they were thinking, you know. Um, and there were th the, the things that prolong something like that can be things that you don't actually anticipate or gamble on or, or, or count for at the beginning. For instance, once you've established a paramilitary organization like the IRA or like some of the others that were around at that time, like the UDA, the UVF and whatever, once you've established an organization like that, you have recruited uh, people who will go out and do things that will get them arrested and they will end up in prison. And when they were in when they're in prison, then you start focusing your energies on prison protest and the organization of prisoners within the prison, so that they to reject the idea that they're criminals, to insist on their political um, purpose and identity, and and then you get prison protests like hunger strikes or like uh, refusal to wear prison clothes and so on. Right. And you also get outside. You have the families of those prisoners, you know, who need support. So you, you, your organization has to expand to fill that need, to raise food parcels for families of prisoners, to raise money for families of prisoners, to provide minibuses to take families of prisoners to the prison, you know, to, uh, to visit the prisoners themselves, smuggle material into them, smuggle messages out from them. You know, the thing very quickly becomes an institution which has its own self-serving purposes, you know. Um, and even if the uh, even if the peace deal of nineteen ninety eight had succeeded in stopping all the violence, it would not have enabled the reduction in scale of those organisations without releasing the prisoners, which is what they did. They released all the prisoners within a two year period, uh, and they had to simply because an institution like that. Uh, becomes like an organization which has work to do and raising money and uh, and raising money through bank robberies, um, uh, but also raising money from door-to-door -door collections, from, from running illegal, illegal drinking clubs. You know, all of that becomes part of it. Even the prisoners where they started making handicrafts in the prison and selling them, sending them out to be sold to raise money for the cause. You have to set up a newspaper. You try to set up... Uh, I mean, we're talking about the 1970s, you set up pirate radio stations. All of that uh, becomes, an, you know, an organization which starts off with the purpose of organizing riots on the streets and shooting British soldiers and bombing commercial property for the purpose of making a political protest, because that's essentially what it was. It wasn't, it wasn't an army that was going to overthrow another army or, or, or gain territory. But you do that for the sake of getting political process. And then you have to build organizational structures around you and routines of behavior uh, to, to sustain all that. You know, that, and that's, that's what happens. I mean, I was uh, a few years ago, I was invited over to London uh, uh, to meet members of Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is not an organization I know a great deal about, but Hezbollah start, you know, started off as this resistance movement against the Israelis uh, in Lebanon. And now it's running hospitals and social services and uh, and all sorts of stuff, newspapers and things, because that's how uh, that's how an organization evolves, has to evolve. It's it's in the DNA. You get three or four people together to gather up some guns and explosives and start a campaign. And within three years, you've got some illegal drinking dens. You've got a newspaper. You've got a radio station. You've got a website and and you've got prisoners. Uh, it, the, whose families need support, you know, it's a, it's an extraordinary thing. 
Yeah, and it's it's amazing what you said that releasing the prisoners was necessary to sort of re reduce the size and impact of these yeah. organizations. Because most people yeah. would think the opposite, that if you put people in prison, oh, it's going to break up the organization, but not not so. No, no, it provides, a, you know, it provides a focus for the energies. It also provides a focus for energies of people who do not support your actual armed campaign, you know? I mean, I remember Christmases at home, you know, where people got out of prison for Christmas for a few days on parole. Yeah. And you and come to the other, they'd come and visit you at home, you know, and you'd say, come on on in, you know, have a beer, you know, uh, higher things in the prison. And you're doing that because he's a neighbor. He's the son of a neighbor that you like and respect. Uh, you don't agree. I didn't ever agreed with, with the things that he did, whether it was planting bombs or shooting at soldiers or, or whatever. But I know the family, you know, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I like and respect the family. I'm not going to fall out with them because of what um, one of their sons has done. And uh, when they, uh, uh, you know, when the family have them home, for, home from prison for Christmas, you know, that's a happy occasion for that family. And, and you feel happy for them. I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe a difficult thing to comprehend or to explain uh, to somebody outside. But I mean, these, these paramilitary organizations were drawing on neighborhoods. Uh, they were a strain on those neighborhoods. Um, but they were organically connected in some way to people who did not even particularly want them to be there or want to support them. Uh, you know, you, you saw IRA funerals, for instance, where a man is killed. Um, and his his coffin is taken to the church. The local priest says the mass and the obloquies for the for the dead man. And the congregation is not just members of the IRA who think this man uh, was a hero. It, it's also his brothers and sisters, his cousins. You know, it's an Irish funeral. You know, they're not. You know, people aren't going to stay away from the funeral because right. the guy was in prison. They, you know, they, they will tend to be there. Yeah, and, and what's what's sort of interesting about that when you say how they're organically connected to the community, um, one of the things, one of the sort of stories you mentioned uh, is there. There was this woman who was an amputee from, uh, I believe, an IRA bombing, who you danced mm. with, and you know she. she yeah, she fell. <laughs> yeah, and she and she laughed about it. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. Good, good to have a, a sense of humor. Um, and but these were, you know, some of the people that uh, I would imagine the IRA is claiming to be liberating. And it seems like just as a feedback mechanism for your organization, when you take uh, like a violent or like retaliatory approach, it, it's uh, it becomes difficult to get honest feedback from the people you claim to represent if they're terrified that, you know, you might do something to them if you uh, seem to be unsympathetic or excessively critical, whatever. Uh, do, do you think that people in, in Belfast, um, how, how do you think they felt in general about the IRA? Well, you can tell from the voting figures, you can tell, it'll, they give you a simple picture if you like. But I mean, the IRA uh, supported a political party called Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is now uh, one of the largest parties, maybe the largest party political party in Ireland. Um, but during the violent campaign, the support for the IRA is very low. The majority of Catholics in Northern Ireland, who were the community that the IRA was drawing on for support, the majority of them were voting for a political party called the Social Democratic and Labour Party, which opposed the IRA campaign. You know, so so the so that's one indicator. But there's also, if you like, something like a, an overlap or a penumbra, you know, a kind of a, a psychological or social space uh, that people would be familiar with, whereby, I mean, I oppose the IRA. I would not join the IRA. I oppose them vehemently. I thought they were completely wrong to do what they were doing. I would not have endorsed them uh, killing anybody. I was going to work in a city that they were planting bombs in, for God's sake. So I was never going to be thinking, oh, God, you're great guys, you know, doing this for me. You know, I, I, you know, I detested what they were doing. At the same time, I knew that some of them were boys I'd sat, sat in the same classroom with at school. You know, 
mean, Joe McDonald, who was one of the hunger strikers who died in hunger strike, you know, was uh, was in my class at school. So I was, uh, you know, I, if I bet Joe at the time that he was doing this kind of thing, I'd have said, you're wise up, you stupid wee brat, you know. Um, but at the same time, I could sympathize with his with his family, with his neighbors, you know, um, a, you know, if. You know, it, it, it's it's about being part of the same community um, that you're closer to them than you are to uh, to the British soldier who's arresting them. You know, you know, um, you don't want them to be hurt. You know, you, you want them to stop what he's doing. You want him to 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 wise up and and learn a better way of doing what he's doing, but you don't want him to get his head kicked in by a soldier, you know. You don't want him to be shot. You don't want him to die of starvation in a prison making a protest, you know. Um, you know, you 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 have some elementary organic affinity to him that you don't have uh, with uh, uh, with people in some remote country, you know. Uh, whose cause you don't quite understand, you know, uh, and who you're never going likely to meet on the street, whose whose mother you're never going to bump into in the in the local uh, in the local grocery shop. I don't know if I'm explaining very well. I mean, I do. Um, no, no, I, that yeah. makes that makes a lot of sense. I'm, hmm. I mean, that uh, naturally people are are sympathetic to people, you know, hmm. and and it's a good thing that people yeah. are sympathetic to their yeah. local community. I mean, we've heard stories like this from gangland London, you know. Um, I mean, there were quite horrific criminals in, in London called the Cray Twins. I don't know if you ever heard of them. You know, and some of the stories that are told by the people who knew the Cray, Cray Twins are, uh, are are affectionate. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's it's awful, but, but it is, you know. Um, you know, they... Some of the things that the IRA did, things that people who lived on my street did, are beyond any forgiveness, you know? I mean, they really, really did awful things. I mean, putting a bomb in a bus station and blowing up people who are waiting to get a bus home from work, you know? That's, that, that is unforgivable, you know? And they did things like that. Putting a bomb in a bar where men are drinking or watching a football match on the TV and not giving them any warning or time to get out, but just blowing them up and, and, and blowing people to smithereens, you know, in a situation like that. You know, they're not your enemy. You know, <laughs> they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're just ordinary people, you know. And, and uh, you know, there were excuses made for it. Oh, there were mistakes made. There was meant to be a warning and didn't get through. You know, the story that you mentioned about... Um, uh, the amputee woman. The, the woman in the, in the Abercorn uh, bar who, who lost her, her legs in an explosion, you know. Um, you know, she, uh, I've lost my train of thought anyway, so sorry. No, no, you, 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 were, yeah. you were saying that, um, you know, there were like, warnings that were supposed to get through and... and yeah, that was it, yeah. Yeah, the story about that is that um, two, two young women went into the center of town with a bomb and the bomb had a timer on it. Yeah. And they probably didn't even have access to the timer because it would have been the bomb maker would have set the timer in a sealed package with the bomb. And their instruction is just go to this part of town, go into a bar, leave the bomb, leave, and then phone this phone number and tell them that there's a bomb and where it is, right? Except that these silly girls walk around while the time is ticking away in the timer. And when they make the call, it's two minutes before the bomb goes off and they're not even specific about where it is, right? Well, now, if you're sympathetic to the IRA, you will say, oh, accidents happen in war. It's an awful pity. I mean, the girls themselves don't feel good about it, you know, and you'll lean that way. And if you're not sympathetic to the IRA, you'll say, well, you, you know, this is, this is just an evil crime and the slaughter of civilians. It's just unwarranted, and, and you know, and you know, and if you you know you know, and there's actually a space in between those positions, you know, totally. where where you can say you know that the, those girls who left that bomb are entirely 
what they did was entirely reprehensible. But yeah. who knows what they're actually thinking about it themselves? And who knows? Aren't I a fallible human being too? And who knows what I might have done if I'd been under the influence of some kind of leadership or or, or whatever? Right. I, I mean, uh, you know, I, I was raised Catholic myself, so this mm. uh, idea of uh, forgiveness and, and grace, yeah. um, mm. which at some point I, I do want to talk to you about. Uh, yeah. You've written about your Catholic upbringing, but you mentioned mm. uh, Sinn Fein as well. And mm. I want to ask you about uh, Jerry Adams, who you yeah. wrote the uh, book about Jerry uh, Adams yeah. about him. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Sinn Fein uh, considered uh, or has been referred to by some as the uh, sort of the political arm, of the IRA. Mm. Um, what, what, what was the first time uh, you met him? What, what was your impression of him? Um. I mean, I'd seen him in situations, but the first time I sat down in an interview with him in Conley House in 1994, that the headquarters of Sinn Féin, um, we were doing a television documentary uh, on, on whether or not there was likely to be a ceasefire. So we were trying to work out whether there would be a ceasefire. And uh, the immediate uh, realisation when we stepped into the building was that people were in awe of this man, you know? There were other journalists around who were who were basically, you know, uh, almost reverential in their dealings with him, you know? And they were overwhelmed by the charm and personality of him. <laughs> and and uh, I, I mean, I wasn't, I hope I wasn't succumbing to that, but I mean, I saw that others were. Um, I also probably, I had to admit to myself that he had more uh, wit and intelligence uh, than I had previously taken him for, because I had my marshaled arguments against the IRA campaign, and I thought, well, these will knock him back fairly quickly, you know, and and they didn't. Um, but at one point, uh, we were discussing whether or not there would be a, a ceasefire, and he said... Uh, you know, it had not yet been decided. We were, you know, there was a priest process and it was developing, but, and we had to move the situation forward is this language that he used. So I just said, so it's going to take a few more bombs yet, is it, Jerry? You know? And he was furious. He just was completely furious. He just, you know, just went very, very cold on me. And uh, I didn't like that question at all. And I thought, you know, it's, it's not necessarily somebody I would like to cross, you know? But, you know, he, yeah. uh, he, he, I don't know what the foundation of charisma is, because in some ways it may just be something that comes from familiarity. You know, if I see the same person on TV a hundred times and then I meet him in the street, you know, maybe I'm going to attribute more, I'm going to assume a familiarity with him that, that's not really there. And is that what charisma is? It's my own projection onto somebody. Um, or, or it is, you know, and there are times certainly with Jerry Adams where we've seen him interviewed where he has been uh, cold and fumbling and ill at ease, you know, and yet we've seen him at other times, you know, addressing an audience where he's uh, really very charming and entertaining and, and quite funny. Um, and there's very serious an interesting story in his own background in that his father sexually abused some of his children, that Jerry himself was moved out of the family home when quite young mm. to live with, uh, with, live with uh, uncles, you know, which, you know, why is it just, well, I suppose he, he grew up as I did in a, in a small house with three bedrooms and, uh, you know, and one bathroom. So, and he, his family, the, the, the 10 children in the family, so I suppose it was practical to uh, to move him away, but uh, you know the his brother Liam uh, sexually abused his own daughter. So the the line the 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 legacy of the habit of abusing children had passed down from father to at least one of the sons, and uh, so that's that's quite a serious thing to to live with, you know, and yeah. to reconcile yourself to. Um, and we don't know what it actually means for Jerry Adams himself because he's he's not spoken in detail about it. Um, 
and he has come across come up against some anger within his own organization because even though he knew that his father had been an abuser he had allowed him the the kind of the ritual heroic <laughs> uh, funeral you know of an IRA uh, of an IRA man from the past you know because the father had been in the IRA in the 1940s the interesting thing as well about Adams is that um, I mean, we saw, I saw the IRA kind of crash onto the streets in 1970 and doing stuff, you know. But actually, his father was in the IRA in the 1940s. Uh, his uncle Dominic was in the IRA, you know, in the 1940s and helped to organize a bombing campaign in England, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, who knows what their fathers know. You know, the, the actual movement, the, the language that this comes down from, comes down from a movement started in the 1850s the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the Fenian movement. And probably in every generation, there's, there's been some expression of it. So there are families in Belfast still which retain a legacy, you know, fathers, grandfathers, uncles, great-grandfathers, great-granduncles in this movement. And they have preserved that culture and that philosophy uh, within those families down those generations. So Jerry Adams was born into one of those families. So the, the expectation that he would uh, be at least a Republican and a supporter of the IRA uh, was there from from childhood, as it was for his brothers and sisters. Yeah. Do Do you think? I mean, it's hard to to know and to sort of pry into someone's psychology. But when you mentioned uh, Jerry maintaining the silence on his own father's uh, abuse, mm -hmm. um, and of course he also. Uh, in his political capacity, has consistently denied that he was a member of the IRA, which a lot of people have found a, a ridiculous denial. Um, did it, 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 you know, again, hard to draw any serious conclusions, but is this all just of a piece where, you know, you learn at a young age to sort of be practiced in denial? Maybe, maybe. I, I don't know. I, I think there's two. Two separate motivations for denial there. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, one one within the family. And, and I mean, there must be an instinct to protect. Presumably there are other siblings who were abused. Right. You know, yes, you know, he can't, you know, he can't, he can't embarrass them, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but the, but the, uh, the, and the, the code within the IRA is that you don't declare your membership. You, you know, you, you know, that is, that is the rule, you know, that, uh, you know, um, at the same time as having denied his membership over and over again, he has become a kind of a lightning rod for criticism of the IRA, you know. And uh, um, I mean, we know, for instance, that Martin, Martin McGuinness, who was Jerry Adams's closest ally in, the, in Sinn Féin, if you like, his closest partner, and who has died, was, you know, was described on his headstone as Oglock Martin McGuinness, a volunteer. So, I mean, so presumably he was a member of the IRA till the day he died. And yet, you know, there was very little of um, people attacking Martin McGuinness and saying, why don't you fess up to what you did in the IRA? Why don't you own up to this? It, in a strange kind of way, Jerry Adams attracted much more of that. There was an understanding of McGuinness and others that they'd been in the IRA, uh, but they were helping a peace process to work. And... Uh, and they were more interested in politics. There was a feeling about Adams that we don't quite know what he's up to. Something mm. about that guy I don't like, you know? That's what people thought, you know? Something, you know, it's too much dissembling, uh, too much, too many high-flown hypocritical statements, um, too many uh, ludicrous claims, you know? Uh, you know, uh, a sense that there was an ego at work there that was... Uh, uh, which was enjoying the denial that he was in the IRA and was almost provoking people to prove that uh, prove that he was. It's I'm curious about his justifications for um, or his, his beliefs that say violence was uh, either necessary or helped uh, achieve peace. Because yeah. moving back in time, it seems like my understanding is that. Uh, the violence in Northern Ireland during this period really kicked up in the wake of a crackdown on what were basically peaceful civil rights protests uh, about like discrimination against Catholics. 
Um, and it's hard to imagine the counterfactual of like, okay, if people had just been committed, nonviolent, peaceful protesters, w- would that movement have taken decades to, to achieve some kind of tentative peace agreement or ceasefire or whatever? Um, do, do you find any of his justifications compelling? No, I don't find his justifications compelling, partly because, and largely because, his version of events is so simplistic and and superficial. Um, I mean, Jerry Adams will say that the you know that the British Army came into Belfast in 1969 for the sole purpose of suppressing the civil rights movement, and that it was in collusion with the with the loyalist paramilitaries. I mean, that's 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 a very naive reading of things. The British Army didn't come in to suppress the civil rights movement. In many ways, it came in to defend the civil rights movement and to uh, uh, you know and to replace the police because the civil rights movement and and protesters on the streets who were not necessarily civil writers themselves, but but getting in on it um, had basically overstretched the police and broken them. So the army had to come in, uh, you know, to restore order. But the army didn't come in. Now, the, now, once the army was in, you know, an army's an army. An army's, a, a, you know, a band of sometimes very undereducated lights, maybe. Uh, you know, and the army did behave badly. But the army was easily provoked and easily wrong-footed, you know. I mean, there was... It's hard to know what could have happened. There were other elements. Elements in play were... The civil rights protests, which, you know, which escalated in response to heavy-handed policing. Um, you also had on the Protestant side this, the, this uh, leader called Ian Paisley, uh, uh, you know, a, a Protestant uh, pastor, who basically had this ludicrous theory that the Pope was directing the civil rights movement, you know, and that the whole thing was a Catholic uprising, uh, you know, to bring Northern Ireland into a Catholic Ireland. I mean, but he he got a huge amount of support, and and he organised counter riots against the civil rights movement. So you had the you know you had a deepening of sectarian tension at a time perhaps when the argument might have just stayed on civil rights and not on and not on sectarian intercommunal uh, animosities. And then you had the IRA, which was an organisation which had a legacy going back as we said, practically to about 1857, which had a tradition of uh, uh, training people in the use of weapons and explosives, and which, and elements of which had certainly been waiting for a new opportunity to, for an uprising you know, uh, against the British on this ludicrous idea that you could actually expel a British army uh, from Northern Ireland. And, uh, and so within those elements, Jerry Adams was clearly an irritant in that he was uh, promoting the activities of the of the provisional IRA, right. would somebody else have done the same thing if he hadn't been there? Probably. Um, had he a particular genius to bring to that, which made it more, uh, you know, a much more energetic campaign than it might otherwise have been? I, I think perhaps also. Um, if the whole thing had not happened, you know, if it hadn't been for the provisional IRA uh, seeking, uh, actively seeking an opportunity to to revive its old struggle, and if it hadn't been for a particularly charismatic Protestant Unionist leader like Ian Paisley, um, and if it hadn't been for moments of uh, sudden unpredicted escalation, you know, uh, for instance, August 1969, remembered as a, as a calamitous evening, August 14th and 15th, uh, huge gun battles in Belfast, um, petrol bombings, buildings burnt, sectarian clashes uh, on really quite extraordinary scale. But, but it was out of pattern with what had been before and what came in the months after. So, it, you know, it didn't actually have to escalate to that level. You know, it might not have escalated to that level. There have been other moments in our history, like the parade, the protest against Orange Parades in Portadown at Drum Cree, you know, where the thing escalated. It, it flared up more than maybe people around it actually expected it to. Or the hunger strikes protest in the prison. You get these peaks 
you know, which break with the normal routine of a, a kind of level of violence that the people are nearly getting uh, accustomed to. And you get these sudden peaks which flare it up and which stimulate uh, the energies which, which carry it on further. And it is conceivable that some of those peaks might not have occurred. It is conceivable that individual people making individual decisions at key moments might have made different decisions which would have taken things differently. I don't know. We're back in a difficult position at the moment. You're probably not hearing about this in the United States. But for instance, we don't have uh, devolved government working in Northern Ireland at the moment. We have a huge amount of unionist protest against uh, arrangements that come out of Brexit, you know, which kind of have effectively established a border between Northern Ireland and Britain. And we are now beginning to see to hear threats from loyalist paramilitaries that 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 violence might reemerge. Now that could happen. It could be. I mean, what would it take to to set things off again? Uh, one serious incident with people killed, and the whole mood would change. You know, and yet maybe the the individuals who would make a decision to produce such a moment might be only two or three people. You know. Um, We've got this awful thing of a divided society and the wedge down through the division of society. And it, it takes a small number of people to, to irritate within that wedge and, and, and alarm the whole of society. It has happened before and it can happen again. Well, let me ask you about one of those peaks. We mentioned the hunger strike. Yeah. yeah. One of the things, and this, this is sort of a fascinating insight uh, into Jerry Adams is that, as, as you mentioned, um, like a, a witty guy, sort of a crafty politician. <laughs> and there has been information that's come out in the past few years that during the hunger strike in 1981, where 10 people died, um, we, we find out years later that the British government gave them an offer uh, yeah. to, to stop the hunger strike that yeah. some people felt was not bad. And mm. that uh, might be worth taking. And I believe it was Jerry Adams who made the decision, no, we're not going to take it. And some people think that he was sort of playing the long game here because these deaths in the hunger strike did help Sinn Féin politically. It, do you have any major, uh, do you have a verdict on, on this, this happening? The final verdict, not entirely, but I mean, I know Richard O'Rawell, who, who basically brought this information out about the, 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 the offer that the prisoners were given. I do think it's quite likely that Jerry Adams, once the channel was open to him from the British, that he tried to keep that channel open a bit longer and negotiate for more. Whereas Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, her position was simply, look, here's the offer. It's take it or leave it. You know, no discussion, you know. And I think I think he prolonged the hunger strike to try and tease out a bit further discussion. I think that's what he wanted. And I mean, he had been in discussion with the British before, and and he was in discussion with them again. But I think that I think that was his motivation. Um, they, they basically reaped enormous political benefit from the hunger strike, you know, for for Sinn Féin, and Sinn Féin when it grew to a certain level was able to say to their comrades in the IRA, look, you know, the armed campaign now is only going to be getting, in the, it's only going to be getting in the way. You know, we can get votes in the Catholic community that we won't get if you're running around with guns shooting people. Uh, and I think that was probably the biggest incentive for the IRA to stop, is to clear the way for Sinn Féin's growth. And that has what, that is what has happened. And that is kind of an argument that may support the strategy of a guy like Jerry Adams, where saying, hey, in order to get these paramilitary groups under control, you sort of do need a, a, a kingpin or at least a, a strong united political party. And while that could be self-serving, it, it sounds like maybe that was accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm not arguing with that, you know. Um, I do think uh, you would have to have some, some nerve uh, to allow your, your comrades to starve themselves to death yeah. uh, and to go on starving themselves to death in order to uh, facilitate your plan. Uh, but yes, that, that, I mean, the outcome is the outcome. Uh, Bobby Sands did not die for the peace process, but in, you know, because he'd never heard of the peace process. But in some ways, he did die for the peace process because uh, 
because his death and the deaths of the nine others, uh, including my schoolmate Joe McDonnell, um, uh, did did lead to the uh, the expansion of Sinn Féin and the, and you know and uh, and we're talking again about that organic connection between the IRA and the wider community, where the wider community that did not support the IRA still felt pity for the hunger strikers, you know? I mean, the odd thing that happened, I was talking there about the, the rift in society, the, the wedge that few people can widen and, and inflame the whole of society. I mean, that's, that's, that's a reality. You know, uh, a lot of people voted for Bobby Sands who would not have supported the IRA. A lot of people sympathized with the hunger strikers and wanted the hunger strike ended for the sake of the men themselves, even though they would not have supported the things that the men were doing and would have been appalled in some ways by some of the things that the men were sending out and the messages that they were sending to Jerry Adams and others. Uh, I have to ask, you were, uh, you were portrayed pretty prominently in uh, this, this best-selling book about the troubles, Say Nothing. Um, but I, I think, if, if I recall correctly, you had uh, some quibbles or criticisms with the way um, with some aspects of what, what the author said or portrayed events. What, what, what was the issue there exactly? Well, Patrick um, tells a story in the book, which I think is a romanticization of that relationship between the community and the IRA. And he says that um, uh, on occasions, and so he pluralizes it, he's not even talking about a single incident, a mother out looking for her son to call him in for dinner you know, would find him uh, coming back from a sniping operation with a rifle, you know, and would rebuke him for uh, uh, missing his dinner. But I think I remember it right, but not rebuke him for having a rifle. Now, I don't believe that story at all. Uh, I think that that is sentimental romanticization. And I think it's, it's a story that serves the propaganda of the IRA and its claim uh, to be wholly integrated into the community. I think it's a daft story. Um, and the very idea that Patrick, who is an excellent journalist, for whom I have enormous respect because of his other work, you know, but the idea that he would be suckered by a wee story like that, I thought was a pity. Uh, and so I wanted to, to say that. Also, he, you know, the, I think in his book, he talks about uh, IRA people relaxing during the ceasefire of 1972. It was a ceasefire in 1972. I haven't got Patrick's book in front of me to quote from exactly, but I think essentially this idea, and Jerry Adams uh, says this in one of his books as well, you know, but how it was such a relief that there was a ceasefire and we were at home and suddenly we had to get back to it. You know, it's all complete nonsense. The reality is more people were killed during that ceasefire uh, than in the two weeks before it. So, uh, uh, so there was plenty of IRA activity during the ceasefire. Mm. And, and I've described some of that in my own books. Yeah, fair enough. Um, we're, we're almost at an hour here. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I do want to ask, um, partly because I'm, I'm just interested uh, about your book, which I have to admit, I haven't read yet, but it's on my list. I was a teenage Catholic. <laughs> That's an older one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. The, the blurb that I've read about it is that uh, you sort of compare your Catholic upbringing with uh, time you spent in an ashram in India. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I, I was raised Catholic, I'm no longer. Uh, I've also been to ashrams in India. Uh, so well, yeah, yeah. What, what is your general take here? Are you partial to either of these traditions? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, you could very little time for this, but I do think that there, there are categories within comparative religion. I mean, Protestant, uh, Protestant Christianity and Islam are religions of the book, you know, whereas Catholicism and Hinduism are religions of the icon, the image, and the ritual, right? So I think that's, you know, I think that's an interesting distinction to make. And I think, I mean, the, the Hindu puja, uh, the offering before the deity, you know, with the candles and bells and incense is, is extraordinarily like the, the Catholic mass. So I, I just, I, you know, I was, I grew up, in Catholicism before the Second Vatican Council, so very familiar with the smells of frankincense and the Latin Mass and so on. And I was really struck by that, uh, by those similarities in India. I'm not a practicing Catholic or practicing 
Hindu. I don't, well, I can't be a Hindu anyway because it's, a, it's an ethnicity as well. And I'm appalled by much in both, you know, but I suppose I retain some kind of semi-nostalgic, quasi-sentimental yeah. <laughs> uh, almost a preference for that kind of religion. I think, you know, I think, I think maybe even if we looked at the religious acculturation of Protestant and Catholic in Northern Ireland, we might find in that some explanation for the political differences they take. Really? Well, why, why do you say that? Well, because uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but Protestants, uh, the Protestant culture of adhering to the book, the Bible, and uh, the, the, the tradition of believing it being, to being uh, uh, basically true, you know, I think lends itself perhaps to a legalistic uh, frame of mind. And I think the, the Catholic idea of being children of the mother, because it's very much a mother-focused religion. They say they don't worship the Virgin Mary, but they do, <laughs> as you probably know. You know, so I think you know that that perhaps produces a culture which is more indulgent of a little laxity and a little playfulness, and you know, in color. I mean, I have to be really careful about overstating these, but you know, uh, Catholics enjoy themselves more. <laughs> I mean, they do. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get hanged for saying that. You realize what you cornered me into, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, before we go, is there anything um, in terms of the future? You mentioned that there's, uh, you know, still simmering tensions that has not been fully resolved. Um, there's still this distinction between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, do, do you do you have hopeful feelings about the future, especially in the context of Brexit? No, I think Brexit disheartens me, you know, because it does, uh, it, it re-energizes the, the case for a united Ireland, uh, and it's not possible to envisage a smooth transition to a united Ireland without serious disruption and probably violence, violent disruption. Um, I just, you know, I mean, I, that is the big question now in front of us and which will be in front of us for 10 or 15 years, perhaps, is whether or not to have a united Ireland and, and how to have a united Ireland. And, um, and that distracts from the vision of the Good Friday Agreement, although the Good Friday Agreement provides the mechanism for a referendum on a united Ireland in the future when there's a clear majority in place for it. Uh, it draws away from the more core vision of the Good Friday Agreement, which was reconciliation through working together between the two traditions in Northern Ireland, the Protestant and the Catholic, the Unionist and the Nationalist. So, so I, I think we're 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 entering a a, fear, a period of more intense intercommunal uh, rivalry and and animosity and and potentially violence. Well, uh, I, I, I wish we could end it on a, on a much, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, sorry, no, no, well, it's uh, well, sorry. you know, it's still a beautiful country, you know. Uh, I don't know if you can hear the rain on my skylight on the window. But it's it's raining very heavily at the moment, but it's still uh, it's still Ireland. It's still a, an island with a population of five million people. Uh, it's still got a gorgeous Atlantic seaboard. Uh, it's still got it's you know it's the mountains and and the bogs and uh, and the valleys and uh, and uh, a friendly people you know the trouble is being friendly to each other we're really much nicer to outsiders than we are to each other sometimes no I mean I'm being I'm being facetious but I mean there certainly is I think the potential ingredients of of serious uh, tension arising. But I think the will of people, that you know, it's still a beautiful country and, and the will of people in the main is, is, to, is to live in peace and, and productivity. Uh, but we have a fundamentally divided society in Northern Ireland. And people say it's divided on the Constitution, but whether it's the United Ireland or, or the Union of Britain, but it's divided in so much more about religion, sport, languages, um, political parties, uh, even territorially, you know, they're housing estates which are entirely Catholic, other housing estates which are entirely Protestant. So, 
so we do have a serious division of society in Northern Ireland, which is not going to be resolved by any of the prevailing political visions that I see in place at the moment. Mm. Uh, and before we go, do you have a, a website or somewhere that uh, people can go to check out more of your work? The best thing is just follow me on Twitter, which is Alm at Mallow Doherty, M-A-L-O-D-O-H-E-R-T-Y, at Mallow Doherty. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much. For thank you, Duncan. I really yeah. enjoyed this. Bye now. Bye. Bye-bye.